pray for this church, for Bible Fellowship, to be a place of recovery, a place of healing, a place, a place where marriages are formed, where we train people well with premarital counseling, where many of our couples are mentoring others, and where it's a hospital where people can come for healing. Father, thank you for this time of prayer. Thank you for creating marriage. And Lord, we pray for our country as as um, people who don't know the Lord, people who don't believe the Bible are trying to um, tear down the institution of marriage. They're blurring the, the distinctions and promoting same-sex marriage or, or just dissing marriage and saying it's unnecessary. We pray for righteousness and we pray for leaders who will stand for the things that are written in Scripture. They're not man's laws. They're your laws, Father. And we pray for healing and mercy upon our country. Thank you, Lord, for your word now as we study Genesis. May you bless it and strengthen us in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in the middle of a study of the book of Genesis. Well, actually, we're not in the middle. We just started. Well, that's right. That's just, that thing kept tripping me. But anyway, we just started this series called Faith of Our Fathers. And we said that we're going to look at Genesis in three sections. The first three chapters, we're going to talk about God's original creation and the fall of man, original sin. Then we're going to look at chapters 4 through 11 and see corruption of flood and confusion and how the nations were formed and why the world's the, the, the way it is and the mess that it's in. And then finally, in 12 through 50, the creation of a nation for redemption. So the first 11 chapters of Genesis span at least 2,000 years. And last week we saw foundationally that the six days of creation that God had created man for his glory and in his image. And so this morning we're going to begin in chapter 2. And I'd like to, to, to begin with a story. I love to go outside at night, take the dog out for a walk or go out and get some firewood. Especially in the winter when the moon is out and the stars are out. And I look up at the sky and almost every single time I do that, my mind immediately goes to Psalm chapter 8. Because as a young man, when I first came to know the Lord, someone encouraged me to memorize um, some passages. And so I memorized Psalm 8. It's just a few verses. But it starts out like this. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. But then David says this in the middle of the psalm. When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, and the moon and the stars that you did ordain, what is man that you are mindful of him. So every time I look up at the moon, I think of how God formed the moon, right? But then David, as he looks at creation, and he didn't know what we know now because of telescopes and how vast the universe is, but he, he knew this much, that when you look at this awesome creation, you sort of go, what is man? Like he's this tiny, you think about the, the, the vast array of the universe and then, God, Psalm 110 says, he humbles himself to behold things in heaven and on earth. It's like he has to stoop down just to look at the universe. And then to focus on this tiny little planet. And then these little clay, clay creatures down here on earth. What is man that thou art mindful of him? And so I think Psalm 2, or, or Genesis chapter 2, is going to answer that question. What is man? And as we work our way through this passage, I want to suggest that there are three answers to that. 
And the first one's found at the end of chapter 1. And so if you're taking notes, in answer to the question, what is man? The first answer is this. He's a creature created in the image of God. A creature created in the image of God. So in 127, on the sixth day, we have this pinnacle verse. God created man in his own image. Male and female, he created them. So what I want you to think about is being made in the image of God implies at least three things. Number one, because we're made in the image of God, we were designed to reflect God. When you make an image of something, it's supposed to remind you of something else. And that, that's the implication that if, if human beings are made in the image of God, then their original design was to, to have people look at them and, and, and angels and spirits look at them and then be reminded of God. So we're little reflectors. Like the moon, we borrow the light of the sun. So God created us to be put down on this earth to reflect him. But secondly, we weren't just stuck down here as statues to reflect God. But secondly, we were created in his image to rule. You'll notice in verse 28, it says, God said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and rule. Rule. Over the, the fish of the sea and so forth. And so the idea here is, is being created in the image of God. He created us with, with the capacity to rule under him. With little vice regents, with little devoted appointees who are supposed to rule over the earth. And in fact, in Psalm 8, David picked up on that because after saying, what is man? He went on to say, you have placed all things under his feet, the fowl of the air, the birds of the heaven. How excellent is your name? Now, later when we study the fall, we're going to find out that that initial creation to rule was desperately marred when Adam sinned. In fact, if he was given a little staff like a king, like a little scepter to rule, it's as though when he sinned, he lost that scepter. In Luke chapter 4, Satan says to Jesus, I'll give you all the kings of this world because they've been handed over to me. But they weren't originally handed over to him. They were handed over to Adam to rule. Now, that doesn't mean we were created to be tyrants. But we had a responsibility to manage creation. But third, we're designed to rule. We're, we're designed to reflect. But we also are designed for relationship. That when God made us, he didn't need us. He didn't go, I'm lonely. But he did design us with the, with the intention of having relationships both horizontally and with him. And so we'll begin this morning in verses 1 through 3, where I just want to basically say, take chapter 2, where it says chapter 2, and move it. Because remember, the chapters and verses were added later. This is a terrible, I don't know why they put chapter 2 here. It should end at verse 3. Because the first three verses are really just the summary of the six-day creation and the seventh day. So really, verses 1 through 3 are, are just the end of the first initial unit. So verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. And by the seventh day, God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. And then God blessed the seventh day 
because, or I'm sorry, then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work, which he had done, which he had created and made. I want to just pause and, and say a couple of things. Number one, when it says God rested, that's probably not the best translation. This word that's translated rested normally just means to stop or to cease an activity. And I think that that's probably a better translation. Then God ceased from his activity. There's a couple reasons for that. Number one, God doesn't get tired. I think we know that, but just remember that. God's, God's not going, oh, man, I just, or he's not going, wow, man, my back's killing me. In Psalm 121, it says, the Lord never sleeps nor slumbers. So it was his intention at the end of the six days to pause. Then God ceased from his activity. One commentary said it this way. It's not resting as a weary one, but as one who is pleased with his good creation, which manifested his glory. So God just stops and he ceases. And he looks at everything that's very good. And he pauses. Alan Ross in his commentary said, he's not, uh, or, 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 or Matthew Henry said, he's enjoying the accomplishment of his creation. He's celebrating its completion. But there was a purpose for this because God, obviously the seventh day became very special in, in the whole story of the Bible, right? The seventh day is different. Saturday, the Sabbath, the Shabbat is set apart by God. And when we come to the Ten Commandments, it says, you shall keep the Sabbath holy like God did. And so I want to pause and just say a couple things about the Sabbath. Number one, we need to ask, are Christians obligated to keep the Sabbath day? If, if you've ever interacted with people from the Seventh-day Adventist church, there's two things they'll tell you. Number one, we meet on the wrong day. They'll go, the Sabbath is Saturday, the Shabbat, the seventh day. So Christians, you're supposed to be meeting on Saturday. And secondly, it's a commandment of which we are not allowed to break. And I'd like to, to, to interact with that. Number one, if someone says to you, hey, why do people meet on Sunday? Don't you know God says to keep the Sabbath? Number one, we don't know for sure why and how the early church transferred their gathering for worship from Saturday to Sunday. But we do see hints of it in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 21, as Luke describes Paul's journey, he says, and on the first day of the week, we gathered together to break bread. So it doesn't say why, but, but, but we do know, hey, as early as the book of Acts, they were already gathering on the first day of the week, it's Sunday. And secondly, that first day of the week took on a different name. The Apostle John called it the Lord's Day. So in Revelation chapter 1, John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. So traditionally, it seems as though Christians early on, because Christ rose on Sunday, began to gather and worship and fellowship on the first day of the week, Sunday, the Lord's Day. Now secondly, are we bound to keep Sabbath? You may have engaged with Christians who tell you, you know what, if you don't keep the Sabbath, you're breaking God's law. You're breaking the Ten Commandments. And I want to suggest a couple of things. Number one, if you're going to keep the Sabbath, you can't just keep it partially. So when people tell me, oh, I keep the Sabbath, I go, number one, do you work at all? Do you cook? Do you? Because any of that's sin. You weren't allowed to cook or work. You had to prepare your food ahead of time. You couldn't go gather sticks. Number two, you can't start a fire on the Sabbath. So 
today, so you can't start your car. Number three, you couldn't travel more than a mile. So a lot of times people go, oh, I, I keep Sabbath. I'm like, well, you probably don't. But the bigger question is this. If you want to keep the Sabbath, you're certainly entitled to that. There's nothing wrong with that. But Romans chapter 14, the Apostle Paul engages with the Sabbath idea. And he tells us as Christians, it's not like God changes his holiness, but his requirements for man have changed on earth. So in Romans 14, says Paul says, one man regards one day above another. But another man, Christian, regards every day alike. Like many Christians would say, every day I live and worship the Lord. So then he says this, be convinced in your own mind. So if for some reason your conscience bothers you to work on Sunday, that's fine. Then, then be convinced in your own mind. But don't bind and obligate others to think that if they're not keeping Sabbath, they're not obeying God. And by the way, if we wrote this, right, we would change it anyway. We would say, five days we shall labor, and weekends we get two days. God's going, who changed that? Just real quick, though, I want to note something that's an interesting apologetic for Christianity. Historians have never been able to account for where the idea of a seven-day week came from. See, we can, we can account for why people have, like, months because of the 30-day moon cycle. But the idea of a seven-day week, as far back as we can go in history, we find that there were pagans who were, you know, kind of engaged in this seven-day, they didn't call it Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, but they had a seven-day work cycle and, you know, or a seven-day week cycle. And interestingly, the best answer to that that anyone has ever proposed, I think, is that it went all the way back to the origin of creation, that we didn't just one day as we evolved out of primordial soup and then became monkeys said, hey, let's become a, let's keep a seven-day week. But rather, being created by God, God started this idea of a seven-day cycle, and people continue to pass down that tradition. And here we are today in cultures all over the world that have nothing to do with the Bible still follow a seven-day cycle. So, God makes man in his image. He says, you're to rule, you're to reflect, and you're created for relationship. But the second thing, the second main point is found in verses 4 through 17. And here we're going to learn that not only are we created in his image, but but we're going to learn that man, what is man? He's created with capacity and responsibility towards God. Capacity and responsibility toward God. And I want us to develop that. I think you'll see it right here in the text. So verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now, just real quick, this phrase, this is the account. Literally, in, in Hebrew, it says, these are the generations of the heavens and earth. That phrase, these are the generations, is used 10 times in Genesis. It's kind of like, here, we're beginning a new section. And normally it's talking about people. These are the generations of Adam. These are the generations of Isaac. These are the generations of Abraham. But here he uses it almost personifying creation to say, I'm going to start this thing by telling you the story of man in his origin. So you're like, well, why is he retelling it? He already told us six days. But what he's really doing, he's going, I want us to dial back. And now we're going to focus on man, the significance of man's creation on the sixth day, created with capacity and responsibility. Just an interesting side note, it kept saying God, God, God in chapter 1, the Hebrew word Elohim. But this time, he's given a name, the Lord God. And though we, we tend to think of it that that's a title, that's actually a name. The word Lord comes from the Hebrew verb Yahweh, 
It's spelled in English Y-H-W-H. And it's simply a verb in Hebrew. Yahweh just means I am. But that's God's personal name. And Alan Ross notes something really interesting. He says, even in Mesopotamian literature of that time, that way back then, it was a practice when they wrote about stories, because they believed in a bunch of gods. Remember the pagan culture? But the determinate god, whoever the big guy was, you would give his name. And so, so Moses, as he writes this, he doesn't just go, oh, is this any god? It's Yahweh God. I am God. That's his name. And of course, that's, we talked about that when we went through Exodus. That's a profound thing to think about, that when God says to, or Moses says to God, what's your name? He goes, my name is Yahweh, I am. And this explains, maybe some of you have heard the word Jehovah. There really is no Hebrew word Jehovah, but rather, because people felt that the name Yahweh was so sacred that they took those consonants and they added some vowel sounds, and that's where they came up with the word Jehovah. So Jehovah is just sort of a an amalgamation of this original name, Yahweh. And so when you're reading your English Bible, if it's L-O-R-D in capital letters, it's not God's title, it's his name, Yahweh. That's my name, I am, the self-existing God. So Moses says, let me tell you about Yahweh and what he did. Verse 5, no shrub of the field was yet in the earth. No plant of the field had yet sprouted, for Yahweh God had not sent rain upon the earth. There was no man to cultivate it or cultivate the ground, but a mist, literally a flow, used to rise up from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. This is a great verse. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Well, I want to start with that word form, because this word form, in the original language, meant to create by design. In fact, the same word, this is really cool, the same word in other verbal forms in the Old Testament is translated potter, right? So it's kind of like the idea of then God pottered man. He, he forms him with a design that was very intentional. And so as he forms man out of the dust of the ground, you know, that, that's kind of like, come on, seriously, you think God just took some dust and dirt and just formed them together? I go, yeah. You want some evidence of that? Come see me about two years after you die, because you're going to be dirt again. It's like God said in Genesis, from the dirt you came, and to the dirt you're going to return. And so, you know, you could say, well, I don't believe that. We don't have to believe that, but I think it takes just as much faith to think some random amoeba just grew up into a person. I think it's just as credible to go, why couldn't an intelligent designer have formed us from the dust of the ground? By the way, being made of dust is intentional to remind us of our frailty. We think we're a big deal. I'm seven times tougher than a hickory briar. But when you get in front of a Mack truck, you sort of go, not so much. And so in Psalm 103, this is what God says about man. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. He knows our frame was but dust. See, that's all we are. We're just, just a composition of earth held together. And if that's all we are, you know, and that's pretty much all evolution has to offer is that we're this random bag of bones and flesh. That's pretty sad. But you see, there's a touch of heaven that contacts this earth because God breathed into man the breath of life. And so when I say in this passage we're formed and created with capacity, I want you to think about this. 
God breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. And what happens is man becomes a living being. You know, the, the, the word here is he becomes a living soul. This word breathes is never used of animals. It's only used of God and what he's spoken to man. And what we're learning here is that this is the problem with our culture and with our world is people think that all we have is an outer man. And they don't realize we have two parts, an outer man and an inner man. And that inner man, that living soul within us is tremendously important. And many people spend their entire life not giving the least concern to it. And then they can't figure out, why can't I find no satisfaction? It's because you are not just a hunk of flesh designed to satisfy your physical cravings. You have an inner being. You have a soul. And so when Jesus came to earth, he pled with people to consider this. Yeah, you can go have sex with whoever you want. You can do whatever you want. You can live your life, Burger King. You can accumulate all the stuff of the world. Good for you, but mark this down. What good is it if you gain this whole world, but you lose your soul? And so as a Christian, I have to remember, I have a soul. I have a, a capacity to relate to God. And that life's deepest satisfaction are not fleshly. They're soulish. They're inner. Man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So as God forms us with this soul within us, significant to think about. We're going to talk next week in the fall of how this soul and this image of God is so deeply damaged, but it's still there. So, verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden. And there he placed the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground he caused to grow every tree that's pleasing to the sight, good for food, the tree of life in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And people go, come on, seriously. Like, you really believe there was a garden of Eden? I'm going, yeah. Why wouldn't I? Right? The word Eden means delight. And we read a few verses later as it mentions some rivers. It mentions the Tigris and Euphrates, which... We're going to assume that the Garden of Eden was originally somewhere in Mesopotamia, Iraq area. We don't know where it is anymore. It's long gone. But, you know, it's interesting when you think about this, because I think God was purposely showing us something here, that this is a type and picture of the idyllic, perfect happiness. There really is a Shangri-La. There really is a utopia. But it's not in this life. It was. But as Milton said, paradise lost. But as you think about this, you go, this is a cool and deep concept to think about this beautiful paradise that God created. In fact, the very word paradise, the Persian word paradise, was a word that meant a garden. And so paradise has moved. It's now up in the presence of God. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, I was caught up to the third heavens to paradise where Jesus dwells. Many, many people spend their entire life hunting for paradise in this life, only to find when they end this life that they missed it. I couldn't believe I once saw a commercial, a fishing 
commercial. A bunch of men drinking beer and fishing. And trust me, I love to fish. I can fish hard, fast, and continuously. I don't need food. I can fish all day long. I love to fish. But I don't find my paradise in fishing. So in this beer commercial, I think it was Old Milwaukee, they've got three guys sitting at the campfire. They've got some fish frying in the pan. They've got their beers. They've got their tent. They've got their fires. A beautiful night. And the one looks over at the other and he goes, it doesn't get any better than this. And I looked at them and I go, really? First of all, in the next scene that they don't show, the mosquitoes are biting them, you know. The bear's tearing down the tent. But you know what? There are so many Americans, and some of you are those people who are chasing around in this life thinking, if I get that house, that job, this girl, this power, this money, man, I've found paradise. You're chasing a pot of gold like a leprechaun. It ain't there. Because the paradise of God is in the world to come. And ironically, in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, when it describes the new heavens and the new earth, it speaks of a place with a river. It speaks of a place with a tree of life. It speaks of a place with beautiful gold and gems, just like this original Eden. So we read. Verse 10, now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first was Pishon. It flows around the land of Havilah, where there's gold. The gold of that land is good. I'm like, I never heard of bad gold, but I suppose 14 carat, I don't know. I didn't know Moses was a goldsmith. Verse 13, the name of the second river is Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It flows around Assyria. The fourth river is Euphrates. But then it says, then the Lord God took the man. He put him into the garden. And I want you to notice that man was created, as I said here, with a capacity and a responsibility. He put him in the garden to cultivate and keep it. Now, those are two interesting words because Moses wrote the whole Pentateuch. Those two words are used later of our responsibilities in obeying God. The word keep is primarily used to obey God, keep his commandments. So what does that mean? I'm going to put you in the garden to keep it. To do what? To obey it? No, but we have to understand that our, our capacity and our responsibility is we were created to work. We were not just created as a being, but as a being with business to do something. And so as we ponder that, we go, okay, so God puts him into this garden, not just to lay around in a hammock and go, give me another orange, but rather to, to say, I have a purpose I'm created to function and to work and to, and to obey and serve my God. But then we get something pretty interesting. We just pass right by this verse. This is the first example of it. And the Lord God commanded the man. Now, the word command has connotations. You get it. Hey, give me some tea while you're up. Excuse me? Did you just say, get me some tea? You, you telling me? Oh, no, no, I meant, would you please get me a cup of tea if, if you don't mind, right? The whole idea of being commanded by somebody bristles, okay? But mark this down. I love what, what uh, Alan Ross says. As a creator, God has a right to command, and as a creature, we have an obligation to obey. You know what? If the whole world would just get on board with that, we'd have a lot less problems. Let me say it again. As a creator, he has a right to command, 
And as a creature, we have an obligation to obey. This is part of the problem down here on earth. We don't want anybody telling us what to do. Where does God come off thinking he can tell me around, you know? He, well, wait a minute. I'm not a creator. I'm the creation. And so God has the right to command. He didn't stutter. Right? And so this is the whole problem when we're going to learn from chapter 3 is that once Adam sinned, we inherited this corrupt, rebellious disposition that is incapable and unwilling to obey God. That's the big issue. Romans 8 says the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. It will not submit to God. It's not even able to do so. But man was created with the capacity and the responsibility. And by the way, the pleasure. This was not going to be something that was onerous. Oh, man, i got to obey God. God made good food, good company, good environment, beauty. But he says, here's my command. So that's really profound, and we need to ponder that. That being created with the, the, the capacity to obey God, we have a sovereign creator and we're responsible to him. And I'll tell you this much, everybody on this planet knows it. The most hardened atheist who says, there is no God. Romans chapter 1 says, God is angry with creation because they suppress the truth because God has made it evident within them. And even though they don't want God in their knowledge... The Bible says God gives them over to a depraved mind, but read it. Romans 1.32 says this. They know the ordinance of God, that practicing these things they deserve death, but they nevertheless not only do it, but they heartily approve it. So that's why the majority of the people on this earth, including many Americans, are going, I'll do whatever I want. And there will come a day when they will deeply regret that unless they come to Jesus and receive his wonderful pardon. So, God puts man in the garden, and he says, you may eat from any tree, but he says in verse 17, but if you eat from this tree, you're going to surely die. This is a funny way of saying it. In the original language, he goes, die and you'll die. You eat that tree, die and you'll die. So there's an emphasis. He didn't just say, you're going to die. He said, you can be sure of this, you're going to die. Now, I can imagine that maybe Adam, after he ate it, when he felt the shame, he went, I didn't die. Oh, yes, you did, Adam. Because death in the Bible has three stages. Think of death as always involving a separation. The first form of death is spiritual death. His soul died. His inner man became disconnected from God. And from that day on, all human beings are born spiritually dead, separated from God. Ephesians 2.1, Paul says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. So your ma, your pa... And you are dead in your sins. That's how we're born. You can be religious. You can be nice. You can be cool. You can be smart. You can be funny. But we're dead. No one is born alive spiritually. No one is born with the capacity to just normally worship and serve God and not self. We're dead. So that's spiritual death. But spiritual death sets in motion physical death. So we come off to a strong start. We come out and we start crawling and we get bigger and stronger and we get up on these two and we start prancing around. We grow hair and we're we're the bong. And then we hit around a certain age. I wouldn't know, but I'm supposedly going to get there. Start losing your hair. You start going down the other end. We start over the hill because we're headed to stage two and that's called physical death. James chapter two says, the body without the spirit is dead. 
And so there will come a time for most of us, unless the Lord returns, when our inner being will separate from our outer man for a time. And if you're a Christian, that's something to look forward to. To live as Christ, to die as gain. To depart and be with Christ is far better. Hallelujah. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. But if you're not a Christian, your spirit immediately goes to a place called Hades, where you're tormented day and night, waiting the resurrection of all of the dead. But the third stage of death is by far the most ominous. And it says in Revelation chapter 20, that one day there will be a great judgment, and everyone whose name is not in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. And then it says this, this is the second death. So you're separated from God at birth spiritually. You're separated from your body at death physically. But to spend eternity in the lake of fire, separated from God, that's called the second death. And can I tell you this? God is not willing for any to perish. He has provided a way out of that. So if you go there, it's your fault. Because God so loved you that he sent Jesus, that he might die on the cross and pay for our sins so that we could be forgiven. And when we turn and we receive Christ as Lord and Savior, when we trust Him, the Bible calls us born again. I'm made alive. I'm forgiven. And my name is in the book of life. And that's, you're like, if you want in on that, Christ says, come. Whosoever will may come. In fact, someone said it this way, if you're only born once, you're going to die twice, physically and spiritually. But if you're born twice, physically and then born again, you're going to only die once, physically, but never eternally. Praise the Lord. Well, finally, in verses 18 through 25, God's going to give Adam the third thing we learn about man. Number one, he's created in the image of God to reflect, to rule, and to relate. But he's created, secondly, as a being with the capacity and responsibility to obey God. But the third thing is we learn that man was created to be in relationship, mutual relationships to help one another serve and obey God. Let me say that again. We were created in mutual relationships to help one another serve and obey God. Now, time's not going to permit us this morning to get into the marriage part. And I'm going to come to that next week. So you can keep reading and then read into chapter 3. But I want to at least begin by looking in verse 18 when God says, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Now, first of all, if you have a King James Bible, it says, I will make a help meet for him. Words change their meaning. The word meet, M-E-E-T, is number one, not a state. And number two, please don't say this. This here is my help me. Because there's no such word. These are two separate words. I will make him a helper meet for him. Not a help meet. Your wife is not a help meet. Right? The word meet. Now this is an interesting word. Because the Hebrew word here means opposite or corresponding to. That's profound. Think about that. So Adam names all the animals. You can't find anyone that's opposite or corresponding to him. So ladies, number one, when it says God created a helper, don't look at that as demeaning. And guys, don't dare treat your wife like a little servant. Come here, help, helper. 
Because number one, that word help, the same word is used of God. Okay, so Gerald, there's some dignity to that. You're not just a little servant to your husband. And so there's this, but, but this is profound. In fact, there's something about the male and female relationship that brings a completion, a mutual complementarian relationship where neither one of them can be what they become as the two are corresponding to one another. In fact, isn't it interesting that even in the very act of intimacy, that unlike animals, it's a face-to-face encounter? And so as we think about this profound creation of God, we learn that we were not created to be islands. We were created to be in relationship. Now, it's kind of easy to, to know when a single girl is, is, is longing for that because you just listen when she prays. She doesn't end her prayer in amen. She ends it in amen. Okay, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Please, no hate mail. It was a joke. Stop. But those who are single really do long companionship. There's nothing wrong with that, and God knows that. Some people have the gift of singleness, and they're very content to stay single, and that's a gift. That's nothing. Stop, you know, assuming that a person who's 30 or 40, like, what's wrong, honey? Help me find somebody for you. Not everyone wants to be married. In fact, as someone said, it looks like flies on the screen. All the ones on the outside look like they want in. But what do they do when they're inside? They're on the screen trying to get out. So if you're single, for a time... Consider that God is teaching you to find your happiness and contentment in Him. Because if you can't find your happiness and contentment in your relationship with God, it will save you a lot of trouble for you and your spouse. You're not going to find it in a spouse. You'll be a horse leech. You'll be sucking the life out of them, going, make me happy. And it won't work. So as we close this morning, we're going to talk more about this beautiful gift of marriage. But there's just... A couple things I want us to press home as we consider that. What is man? He's a creature created in the image of God to reflect and rule and have relationship. And, and secondly, he's a creature with a capacity and a responsibility to be in obedient relationship with God. And third, he's created to have help, mutual assistance. A couple things. Number one, I want you to think about this. If you're a Christian this morning, remember that you're not just a body. You're a spirit. And so I want you to relate to God in a different way. And here's how. In Hebrews chapter 12, we learn that God's design and desire for us Christians is to grow into the image of Christ. And if you don't pursue that, if you don't respond in seeking God and growing and feeding your soul, God's going to discipline you. The Bible says, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines them. But in that passage, the author, the Holy Spirit really uses a neat term to describe God. He says, when we had earthly fathers, we listened to them. This is what he says to Christians. Shall we not also be subject to the father of our spirits and live? Have you thought about that? God's not just the father of your body. He made you alive in Christ. And he's the father of your spirit. And so this week, as you walk with God and as you talk to him, father of my spirit, thank you for making me alive, and now you're renewing me into the image of Christ. So the text says, shall we not be in subjection to the Father of Spirits? So let's work on being submissive 
trusting God and obeying Him because He really does have our best interests in mind. Secondly, the same God who gave us being gave us bigness. Meaning, every one of us as a Christian has the capacity and responsibility to work for God. Now, it doesn't mean that it has to be out there in the workplace. Those of you wives who stay home to care for the home and the children, that's a beautiful thing. Don't, don't feel bad about that, but do it as unto the Lord. All of us, whatever, when you go home and when you go to whatever your work is, unless, you know, if you notice there's a lot of kids have come up with a new term, we've got stay-at-home moms. If you notice these older kids that get out of college, they're, they're stay-at-home kids, you know, you know, they, they're like, wait, it's how you're going to get a job. Well, there's actually a book now called Quarter Life Crisis. It's for these poor 25-year-olds. They're, they're in their crisis. They don't know, what should I do? But listen, if you're a student, if you're a mom, a husband, whatever you are, we all have, have bigness to engage in. Do your stuff as unto the Lord. Whatever we do, do it for the Lord because He created us and He says He'll reward us. So, Start looking at your work as not, I hate this place. And I'm not doing it for people. I'm working as unto the Lord. We're not just a being, but created to obey and cultivate a business. But finally, as a Christian, don't lose sight or hope in that future paradise. That's why we need to keep gathering and hearing the word of the Lord. Because Satan's telling us all week long, if you want to be happy, you got to have this, this, and this. Right? Your team has to win. You know, you have to get this job. If you have this, if you drink this, if you do this, if you vacation here. And so we run around busy, busy, busy. For what? At the end of the day, we're not going to find paradise in this life. And so the sooner we go, you know what? It's not in this life. It's the life to come. There's no U-Hauls on the back of hearses. So I give and I serve and I walk with God and I suffer and I groan and I struggle with sin and I pray. And I seek to advance the kingdom of God, knowing that one day, blessed are those who die in the Lord, they enter their rest. There is a paradise. Just look further and live for that, not for the stuff down here that doesn't last. But finally, Matthew Henry came up with a beautiful idea here. He says, you know, Adam in many ways pictured Christ, but I never thought of this. He said, when God put Adam to sleep, a deep sleep, he opened his side that life could come out of him. And he says, our Lord Jesus did the same thing. When they hung him up on the cross, he slept the sleep of death. He bore the wrath of God and he said, it is finished, my God. And remember, they poked him in his side and out of his side came out water and blood. The symbol that that water would cleanse us from our sins. And that blood would buy us back to God. And so I want you to close by thinking of the Lord Jesus. The Lamb of God who loved us, who gave himself for us, who forgave us, who's renewing us into his image. And if you don't have a relationship with him and you finally get it, it's not about being religious. That's not going to get you right with God. It's about repentance and faith. Just going, God, I blew it but I come to Jesus. Lord Jesus, I trust you as the one who paid for my sin. Invite Christ into your life now. 
and he will become your Lord and Savior, and you will be made alive, and you will start a new life with Christ. And that's our prayer. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, your word is good and powerful, and the Holy Spirit is moving in our midst. And Lord, there are many things that need to happen as a response to your word. If you want Christ in your life, right there in your seat, respond to him. Say, yes, Lord Jesus, come into my life, forgive me, be my Lord and Savior. And then Christians, thank God, worship the Lamb who made us alive. And Father, this week, help us to be in subjection to our Father of Spirit. And help us to come back prepared to think about chapter 3 and the consequences of the fall. We thank you for your word, and we know that it's powerful and many are being moved to come to Christ. And that's just the prayer. And we pray that we will see that fruit continue as we go out to work and worship and witness for you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great week.